This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Jwalani Tulo, Tracy Boomgaard, and Musiburi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Embattled Malawian president hits out at people protesting against his re-election. African heads of state and governments met in Niger at the weekend to officially launch the operational phase of the African continental free trade area. In economics, Kenya and Tanzania signed key agreements aimed at boosting bilateral ties. And in sport, the race for 2019 AFCON quarterfinals spots to be finalized tonight. Hello Zwalani, how are you? Hi, Samara. Well, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank mm. you. Now, we do know that over the weekend, uh, we did see a lot of well-known people heading to Durban mm-hmm. in KZN Ooh. for the Durban July. And uh, I saw a very a very um, interesting tweet from a friend of mine who said that Somizi is very important for the culture. And, of course, that's speaking about the LGBTQIA plus culture. Mm. Um, how important do you think that such figures are or such events are? Uh, in Africa to make sure that we open the minds of people because uh, I'll actually I'll actually come back to why I'm asking this well I think it is very important you know uh, to minimize discrimination I think mm-hmm. against the, the the group of people LGBTQ <laughs> <laughs> you know I think they are important you know to have such figures at the forefront and living their lives and showing that there's nothing to be discriminating against all right and we also did see Zoto Abantu coming out mm. and having very mm. uh, homophobic comments so um did she yes okay let's do the news yes <laughs> okay if you want to know more about what zoro abantu said go on to twitter search for the hashtag zoro abantu you'll find everything on there but right now the time is 1702 central african time let's cross on over to the news desk here is Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Former Congolese militia commander Bosco Ntagada has 30 days in which to appeal his conviction before he's sentenced. The International Criminal Court found him guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity. They include rape and murder during fighting in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The former child soldier had denied the charges. The BBC's Anna Holligan has the story. He was found guilty on all 18 charges, so murder, rape, sexual slavery, persecution, pillage, forcible transfer, conscripting and enlisting children into an armed group and using them to participate on the front line. They went into more detail about some of the attacks, bodies found in banana fields after massacres, and the judges explained that even though Bosco Ntanganda was not necessarily present for each of these massacres, he played a leading role in organizing them. South Africa's opposition DA has accused Communications Minister Stelanda Beni Abrams of misleading Parliament by not disclosing earlier that the National Treasury had rejected the public broadcaster's request for a guarantee. Last week, Ndabeni Abrams told Parliament that the SABC was in discussions with Treasury about an application for a government guarantee. It has since emerged that Finance Minister Tito Mboweni had already declined the application for a government guarantee in a letter he wrote to Ndabeni Abrams dated June 20- 25th, uh, at the DA's Pumzile Fandam elaborates. I reveal that the communications minister, Stelenda Wendy Abrams, with help from Parliament, the decision by the finance minister not to grant the SABC a guarantee. The letter which has been leaked to the media was sent to Minister Ndaweni Abrams days before she appeared in Parliament and she ought to have appraised the public and indeed Parliament of the decision by the Finance Ministry. The contents of the letter itself are very problematic as they reveal that neither do the Finance Minister or the Communications Minister understand their roles as it relates to the SABC. 
Ghana has dropped treason charges against nine alleged separatist leaders accused of seeking an independent state for the people of the eastern Volta region. The nine members of the Homeland Study Group Foundation, HGSF, were arrested in a police crackdown in May and charged with plotting to create a new nation to be named Western Togoland. In 2017, the group's leaders were arrested and warned not to engage in activities against the state. The HGSF group has welcomed the ruling. Two Tanzanian government ministers have engaged in a Twitter war over a project to build a cable car on Mount Kilimanjaro, the continent's highest peak. The tourism minister announced the plan in April, but the environment minister appeared to throw a spanner in the works at the weekend when he tweeted that it would be his ministry that would that would conduct studies on the potential environmental damage. The tourism minister then responded by insisting that his department would take would also take uh, such things into account each year. About 50,000 people climb the 6,000-meter peak. And finally, the British government has told the U.S. that it regrets the leak of memos in which the U.K. ambassador described President Donald Trump's administration as dysfunctional and called the president himself incompetent and insecure. The memos from Sir Kim Darach, the ambassador to Washington, were leaked to a Sunday newspaper. A spokesperson for British Prime Minister Theresa May says she has condemned the leak and has been in contact with Washington over the matter. Britain's Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt says the information breach is worrying. It fundamentally undermines the brilliant work done by the Foreign Office all over the world and I made it clear that I don't share the Ambassador's assessment of either the US administration or relations with the US administration but I do defend his right to make that frank assessment and it's very important that our diplomats all over the world continue to be able to do so. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Embattled Malawi President Peter Mutarika has told off opposition leaders, human rights defenders and protesters that are against his re-election on May 21st that they will not topple his government. Mutarika said this during the 55th Independence Day celebrations held at Kamuzu Stadium in Blantyre over the weekend. This follows post-election protests last week where demonstrators set vehicles and some buildings on fire, looted shops as well as offices. George Mhango reports. A visibly charged President Peter Mtarika said it was ill-timed for opposition protesters to call for his head and that of the Malawi Electoral Commission chairperson Jane Ansan. Mtarika said the truth of the matter is that both main opposition leader of the Malawi Congress Party, MCP Lazarus Chakwera, and his former Vice President in Government, Salos Chilima, who also contested on his United Transformation Movement, UTM, lost the pause. I know. What is going on in this country is not about the election. It's not about the nation. They know. They know that they lost the election big time. They know that. What they are trying to do is to try to destabilize this country and take over this government. Let me assure them that they'll take over this government of my dead body. They will never, never, never take over this country. Let me warn. They will never do it. What they are doing, what they are doing is totally unacceptable. Their violence, their violence is unacceptable. Turning Malawi into a lawless state is unacceptable. Intimidating people who support the government is unacceptable. Intimidating innocent business people is unacceptable. Intimidating chiefs is unacceptable. And we, the people of Malawi, will hold each one of them accountable. I can assure you that. The time is coming. The time is coming. You're seeing the force of the law. The law take action and force will be made with force. I promise you that now. Because this nonsense must come to an end. His sentiments follow continued protests and a two-day vigil organized by Human Rights Defenders Coalition, HRDC, 
who want the Malawi Electoral Commission chairperson Jane Ansa to resign. The coalition and opposition political leaders claim that the MEC chairperson put President Timutarika in power fraudulently using correction fluid on presidential result sheets. Political and human rights activists state that demonstrations are a right to anyone. Most of them added that the electoral reforms bill should be a priority if things are to change for the better politically. Victor Chipofia is one of them and thinks problems emanating from the May 21 polls could be resolved through the electoral reforms bill. These MPs, they go there to just do the wills of their leaders, not necessarily the, the will of the people that elected them into those positions. Because the first thing I would want to see this parliament do is review these elections, our electoral laws. They've got the mandate, they've got the power to do that. Review and fix things for the better. However, President Mutariga called for peace and held the country's security forces for maintaining order as protesters demonstrated in the country's cities and towns. He said there are millions of Malawians who are silent but love the country, adding that it has taken unity and hard work to build Malawi and observed that the struggle for independence was challenging. Let me explain. Let me explain the political situation that we see. The violence you see is calculated to turn Malawi into a lawless state. That's why they want to undermine every democratic institution that ensures law and order in this country. They want to undermine our courts because make us democratic and lawful. They want to intimidate our chiefs because chiefs are concerns of traditional laws. They want to undermine the Maui Electoral Commission because this is a body that oversees democratic institutions. Meanwhile, the Malawi Police Service has arrested 68 people for looting and injuring police officers during the post-election demonstrations last week. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. African heads of state and governments met in Niamey, Niger over the weekend to officially launch the operational phase of the African Continental Free Trade Area. It is reported that if successful, it will unite 1.3 billion people and usher in a new era of development. The agreement will pave the way for the free movement of goods, services, investments and people around the continent. It is hoped that the African Continental Free Trade Area uh, the largest since the creation of the World Trade Organization will help unlock Africa's long obstructed potential by boosting intra-regional trade, strengthening supply chains and spreading expertise. Channel Africa's Benjamin Mushatama spoke to Liesl Lowe-Vaudren, a senior research consultant with the Institute of Security Studies, who is currently in Niemi attending the African Union Summit. This is actually an extraordinary summit of the African Union because uh, we've decided to have only one summit, a full assembly summit per year. But there were about 32 heads of state, including some of those who have not yet ratified, like Mohamed Buhari. Uh, you know, people saw yesterday that Nigeria has now signed. It still hasn't ratified, which is interesting because speaking here to ministers and trade experts are saying that actually the big industrialized economy, you know, like Nigeria, South Africa, the powerful countries will be the ones for now who will benefit enormously from the free trade. And it's really the smaller countries like Niger, where we are at the moment, that are fearful of being swamped by products from the bigger countries. And because they are basically not industrialized or the economy is not as diversified and sophisticated, infrastructure is not there for the actual exports, that they will be the ones to still have a long way to go before they really can benefit from the um, TFTA. Let's look at uh, this issue of uh, the conservative approach from Nigeria. There talks around why they're signing and not ratifying, Lisa? Yes. Uh, as you know, I mean, it's been coming quite a long time since March last year when almost all the countries, over 40 of the continent, had signed in Kigali. Uh, Nigeria's business people, trade unions, 
were uh, saying exactly this, that there is an element of also feeling that South African products would then come into the country tariff-free. You know, South Africa has got customs unions, free trade areas with SADC, uh, COMESA. There's a tripartite free trade area that is being negotiated with between South Africa, COMESA and ECA. It is not like we, you know, this is not the first free trade area mm. that Africa is entering into. But the Nigerians... Um, on the one side, that was the one fear. The other one is also about the rules of origin. That's a very sticky point, is that a product would come onto the continent, the Ethiopians would sew on a button, a product would come in from China, and then it's an African product, and it would also flood uh, other economies and be unfair competition to Nigeria and others. I also, you know, Morocco is also a big threat to countries. But uh, President uh, Buhari uh, asked for studies and uh, lots of consultation and discussions. It's really been on what we can see and has now agreed to sign up. So basically there are now um, 53, 54 uh, signatories of the Eritrea is outstanding and then 26 countries with Gabon and Equatorial Guinea uh, ratifying it, so they were deposing their um, documents of ratification. Mm -hmm. um, what what uh, the South Africans are also saying is, look, um, better ratify now and be part of the negotiations. And that was Liesl Lovaudrin, a senior research consultant with the Institute of Security Studies, who is currently in Niemi attending the African Union uh, African Union Summit, speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. The time is 17.16 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora. When we come back from this very short break, we're going to speak a little bit about Ebola. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The outbreak of Ebola in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo is now almost a year old. It has already claimed the lives of more than 1,500 people. The international medical response has checked the progress of the virus, uh, saving many lives. But it has not contained the disease that many fear could now spread south from the provinces to the regional capital, Goma. Uh, this is on the border with Rwanda. And from there, the BBC's diplomatic correspondent, James Landale, reports. I'm standing on the shores of Lake Kivu, one of the great lakes of Central Africa. Behind me lies Goma, one of the largest cities in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's, a, it's a lovely setting. Yet Goma is a city under threat. To the south, the lake contains dangerous levels of lethal methane, and to the north lies an active volcano. And now there's a new threat, Ebola. And people here are worried, like Sylvie and Martin enjoying Sunday morning with their daughter, Eliana. If it comes to Goma, it will be a catastrophe. Some people are not concerned, but it does concern me. We flew north of Goma to Butembo, at the heart of the outbreak that's already killed more than 1,500 people over the last 11 months. This is the front line against the disease, a pop-up vaccination centre for the family and neighbours of a woman who died this morning, just part of the huge international medical response that is saving lives 
but not containing the virus that some fear could head south. What's well, a present danger, frankly? It, it could be here any day. David Gressley is the United Nations Emergency Response Coordinator for Ebola. There's a lot of work in terms of vaccination to try to create a firewall, a lot of work in terms of preparedness and surveillance, but these systems can break down, and over time, if it's long enough, probably will break down. At Goma Hospital, the choir practiced as we visited a small clinic set aside for suspected Ebola cases. There have been no confirmed incidents here yet, but they're already building another treatment centre on the other side of town. Okay. Yep. But after inspecting the facilities, the International Development Secretary, Rory Stewart, was concerned. I was actually worried by the thermometer checking of temperatures on the entrance to the Goma General Hospital and by the isolation facilities that are available there. So Goma is a big place, millions of people living there. If it gets into that type of area, it's very difficult because Goma really is connected to the world. We've come to the border between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. But everyone who crosses here, first of all, they wash their hands in buckets of chlorinated water. Once that's happened, they then move off to have their temperature checked. And there's, a, there's a lady here with a thing that looks a bit like a gun. Move your glasses. I take my glasses off. So my temperature, that looks good. It's 36.5, so that's good. So it's an infrared laser that, that bounces into my skin, takes the temperature, bounces back, and not, makes not the your brain. <laughs> not my brain. No, not your you, brain. You, yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> not your brain. And what's astonishing is that this border sees between 18 and 20,000 people crossing every single day. And if it was closed because of Ebola, it would have a devastating impact on the economy, destroying the livelihoods of small traders who cross each day. But not all here are so pessimistic, such as Amory Louf from Doctors Without Borders. I mean, if it comes here, we're talking many thousands potentially dying, not just, you know, just over 8,000. We know already for eight or nine months that there is this outbreak, so we are already preparing. So seriously, I am a bit more optimistic than thousands and thousands, but it could be, it could be quite big. In a packed bar in Goma, there's a big football game going on. Everyone's watching the action. And yet even here, there are small TV screens showing health information films about the danger of infection. In some ways, Ebola has already arrived in the city. And that report was by the BBC's James Lansdale. For the first time, Zimbabwe will be conducting its first research and development survey to identify financial, personnel challenges and other resources required by the small to medium enterprises in line with the country's Vision 2030. Research and development survey is a key success factor for Zimbabwe's socio-economic transformation and competitiveness as a country uh, to strive towards in order to attain the lower middle Uh, income by 2030. Zimbabwe has more than 90% unemployment and is banking on SMEs to boost its economy. The majority of Zimbabweans is self-employed as vendors or low-income entrepreneurs and faces numerous challenges too. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. In a bid to produce improved goods and services that are competitive globally, the Zimbabwean government is conducting a research and development survey for SMEs and cooperatives. The research that will start end of July this year shall hear inputs from various stakeholders including small to medium enterprises, cooperatives and innovation bodies. For a country that suffers from more than 90% unemployment rate and whose manufacturing industry is dominated by the informal sector, Zimbabwe stands to benefit from this survey. Already, the country's leadership is preaching that Zimbabwe is open for business while business leaders are advocating for lower middle income status by 2030. Currently, entities whose turnover is up to $240,000 or employees up to 75 people may take part in the development survey. There are numerous advantages for SMEs and cooperatives that take part in such surveys and even take heed of the recommendations after the survey report is launched, Research Council of Zimbabwe Executive Director Susan Muzite said. As we all know, R&D is a key success factor 
for Zimbabwe's socio-economic transformation and competitiveness for the country to attain Vision 2030. R&D statistics must therefore be available for informed decision-making at all levels, national, provincial, and down to individual SMEs and cooperatives. The Zimbabwean economy is informalized following the collapse of companies owing to a negative operating environment. This resulted in the emergence of the informal sector, whose total contribution towards the GDP is yet to be known. The survey will also help Zimbabwe tap into the informal sector for a widened tax base, Susan said. We cannot develop as a country without paying attention to all our laws, including the tax law. We cannot develop as a country without our SMEs, who are a major contributor to our GDP, knowing how to go about all that. But from where we sit as Research Council of Zimbabwe, we are saying embrace R&D. And in fact, that may be a beginning point for opening up to know that, in fact, there is nothing to be afraid of. There is everything to gain by, if you grow from the research base, you will even, as an SME, research into the laws that affect income, laws that affect um, labor, and even laws that affect the product you are producing. Zimbabwe is currently facing serious economic challenges owing to various sectors that include corruption, low investor confidence, shortage of foreign currency, and many more. Production is low in the manufacturing industry, hence the export base is also shrinking. With improved goods and services, Zimbabwe could join other countries in the developing world to compete for international markets, Susan said. The emerging economies have significant contribution of their GDP from SMEs. And I believe that position is also true in Zimbabwe. However, SMEs in Zimbabwe still have some way to go with respect to embracing research and research results. The work of the ARA Research Council of Zimbabwe is to demystify and to cause befriending of research. If you are an SME or a cooperative or at whatever level, you do not have to understand or know the details or the high science in the research results you will be using. You, all you need is knowing where to go to get the research results that will help you improve your good or your product or your service. In Arari, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. The 38th Annual Southern African Transport Conference, supported by the South African Department of Transport and the Transportation Research Board of the United States of America, is expected to kickstart this morning at the CSIR International Convention Center in Pretoria, Gauteng. The four-day conference, ending on the 11th of July 2019, is set to provide a platform for national and international dialogues on transport as an enabler of socio-economic development. Panwal Shuma and Lindukuhle Zadla filed this report. With this year's theme as disruptive transport technologies, is South and Southern Africa ready to tackle challenges encountered by the world transport system? This remains the task of over 700 transport professionals expected to discuss, debate and learn about relevant topics relating to all aspects of transport in Pretoria this week. Delegates are expected to, among others, bring solutions to improve service delivery in both private and public transport sector. Transport Minister Fikile Mbalulam elaborates on the significance of the conference. The 
conference is Southern African uh, Transport Conference and uh, the theme is disruptive technologies in transport. It means we look at the fourth industrial revolution in terms of its advantages and disadvantages and take what is an advantage to our strength in terms of consolidating our work in expanding our relations, particularly in Southern Africa. We look at the world, we look at Africa, but the starting point is Southern Africa. How do we then consolidate through technologies and exploit the positive of the fourth industrial revolution in transport? It is anticipated that the four-day dialogue between public and private sector stakeholders will present workable solutions and action plan for tackling future challenges in the transport system. Dr. Mtetwa Mukonyamam is part of the organizing committee from the Southern African Transport Conference. So we are going to firstly be informing the transport community on the latest developments around transport in general, but we also want to start influencing transport policy in municipalities, provinces, and nationally. Um, it's a Southern African Conference, so we also want to influence what is happening in the Southern African region uh, using best practices. And we're going to also highlight some of the knowledge gaps that we need to start addressing uh, going forward, especially regarding to uh, adoption and adaptation of transport technologies in the system. Road fatalities remain a thorny issue for most countries. For African countries, the average fatality rate is about 24% in every 100,000 people, whilst globally, the average is around 18% fatalities in every 100,000 people. In South Africa, approximately 1 million road accidents are reported per year, and some blame it on bad road infrastructure and reckless driving. Yeah, I need more roads, so the people must go to work properly. We can take an hour, one and a half hour to go to town, more especially in rush hour. For me, the only thing need to improve is visibility of traffic cops on the road. I think that will improve the way we behave on the road. I think the roads and the enforcement are the things that they should look at most of the time because of the way accidents are happening these days. It's like we have a problem between bikers and motorists, uh, so we're losing so many bikers every day. I just wish we can have that awareness that cars should look out for us. I think the South African roads are fine, especially in routing. We are happy with the roads. I think they must create more parking in the city, in the malls. Organizers believe the conference will serve as a forum for discussion and information exchange on the implementation of transport policy, strategy and technology applications for all aspects and modes of transportation. Fanuel Schumer, SABC News in Pretoria. 17.31. It's just gone 17.32 right now. It's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's Joaleni Tulo with your latest news headlines. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, former Congolese militia commander Bosco Ntagada has 30 days in which to appeal his conviction before he's sentenced. South Africa's opposition DA has accused Communications Minister Stelanda Benny Abrams of misleading Parliament by not disclosing earlier that the National Treasury had rejected the public broadcaster's request for a guarantee. And finally, Ghana has dropped treason charges against nine alleged separatist leaders accused of seeking an independent state for the people of the Eastern Volta. Region. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Hi, Nelson Hodesa Mandela. And I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it. And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Siro Ramaphosa, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa Channel Africa.
Just 6,000 of the 280,000 Central African Republic refugees in Cameroon have accepted to voluntarily return to their country after months of negotiations with representatives of a tripartite meeting of the United Nations Refugee Agency, the Central African Republic, and their host country, Cameroon. The reluctant refugees say they prefer to remain in Cameroon in spite of the difficult living conditions because the situation in their country is not improved as expected. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. It is a busy and hot Monday morning at the University of Yaoundé 1 in Cameroon's political capital. Among the several hundreds of people at the campus is 49-year-old hawker Yombi Florence. She says she lost her husband in violence in the CAR southeastern town of Mingala four years ago and fled to Cameroon for safety. She says she spent her last three years studying in Yaoundé to become a store's accountant and she is not sure that she will find a decent job in her country CAR. She says she prefers to sell bottled water and cold sweet drinks to university students in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, where there is peace and take care of her three kids, whom she is certain will not find good education in a country that is devastated by war. Yuanbi is one of the over 270,000 CAR refugees who have not accepted to voluntarily return to their country after several months of calls from their government, the government of Cameroon and the United Nations. Boti Kali, UNHCR representative from CAR, says they are expecting them to return because they are optimistic the refugees will find peace now that the CAR government has redeployed its administration and violence, especially in the western and southwestern parts of the country, has drastically reduced. One would not say everything is perfect, but one would say that for all those who are willing to go back, there are chances that they would be well reinserted into their areas of origin. In February, CAR that has been rocked by violence since 2013, when mainly Muslim Seleka rebels ousted then-President Francois Bozizé, prompting reprisals from mostly Christian militias, reached a peace deal with 14 armed groups following UN-sponsored talks conducted in Khartoum. It was expected to usher in a period of stability in the volatile country. Many observers said they were not sure it would work because similar agreements in 2014, 2015 and 2017 all broke apart. Several armed militias rejected the president's new cabinet and continued violence when only six of the 14 armed groups that signed the Peace and National Reconciliation Accord in Khartoum were represented in Foster Ashkan Twadera's cabinet. Vivian Bakua, CAR's Minister of Humanitarian Action and Reconciliation, says her country needs its citizens to return and develop their communities and country. She says she is reiterating to her compatriots who agreed to voluntarily return that they will be treated with dignity and that CAR will protect them and respect all conditions it has signed to respect their rights back home. Paul Atanganji, Cameroon Territorial Administration Minister, says according to the terms of the tripartite agreement with CAR, and the UN, Cameroon will assure their safe return. This legal framework puts in place all the mechanisms to accompany them. After having received relief for some time and assistance, now they have the opportunity to go back and live a normal life. The UN reports that in 2018, some 650,000 Central Africans 
were internally displaced and 546,000 were refugees in neighboring countries with more than 300,000 in Cameroon. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. Moving on to Cuba right now, where South Africa's Minister of Health has described the graduation of the latest batch of South African medical doctors through the Nelson Mandela Fidel Castro Medical Collaboration Program as a major boost for the much-needed human resources in the public sector. The 87 medical doctors are the largest group to graduate under the program since its inception over two decades ago, bringing the total to over 730. More from Dr. Sbongile Zungu, who is responsible for the program. The program was born out of the vision of uh, our former president, Nelson Mandela, and Fidel Castro in their brotherhood to look at assisting South Africa to increase the numbers of health workers, especially the doctors. Initially, the program, uh, when it started, only about nine doctors were sent to Cuba, and quite a number of Cuban nationals as doctors came into South Africa to support the rural areas of South Africa, some of whom had never had a medical practitioner. And looking at how Cuba had fared in terms of management of infectious disease, as well as the management of chronic disease and the disease of lifestyle, it was a very big step for South Africa to take on the program to try and achieve similar outcomes as the Cuba had. In Cuba, the numbers of people with infectious disease or the prevalence of HIV and TB and others is very low, which is an admirable thing looking at our South African system. So since then, around 1996-1997, the numbers of doctors that, that of students, South African students that have been sent to Cuba has risen over the years with nine and rising up to about 80 in the later years. And then a breakthrough was in 2012 when almost a 1,000 were sent to Cuba. It was about 995 students that were sent to Cuba at the time in 2012. And these have since come back into the country at a number of uh, 712, then they are in our nine universities, medical schools in South Africa, doing an integration program so that whilst they've learned a lot in Cuba, they also familiarize themselves with the South African health system. Mm. What is the criteria used to select the students uh, for the program? The selection criteria is similar to the selection criteria in our South African medical schools. And the difference with the program is that students that would have not had an opportunity because of financial means, because of their socioeconomic backgrounds, are the ones that are prioritized to be able to access the government assistance in terms of a bursary to be able to study in Cuba. So how have you seen the program uh, transforming South Africa's healthcare system in the time that it's been in implementation over the years? The transformative nature of the program firstly comes from the making it possible for a student coming from a poor a socioeconomic background and having limited resources and who would not ordinarily have had an opportunity to study medicine, having that particular student and that particular household having a medical graduate. And secondly, the program is also transformative in terms of the focus on disease prevention and health promotion, which is a subject that exists in our medical schools, but it's not a prioritized subject. In Cuba, this is a priority or the cornerstone of the studies. The students that study in Cuba have an understanding of uh, the districts within which they work. They understand the population within which they work, and they are therefore able to channel the programs, the health programs, such that they are responsive to the local conditions of the patient. However, at this point, we have not had a big number of such graduates such that they can have a sizable impact. But wherever they have been, 
they have tried to make a difference. And that was Dr. Smongile Zungu, who is responsible for the Nelson Mandela Fidel Castro Medical Collaboration Program in South Africa, talking to Asanda Beda. The time is 17.44 Central African Time. A quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us a WhatsApp message to plus 277-6300-3327. And you can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Hello, Tracy. Hi, Samara. Do you have Twitter? Yes, I do. You do? I do. Wow. <laughs> I, I, and I've got Instagram. Really? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, now you know that Tracy Boomgard is available on Twitter as well as Instagram if you want to get a hold of her. What are your Twitter and Instagram handles? <laughs> do you even know? Do you even remember them? <laughs> I do, I do. Just give me a moment. <laughs> you know, Tracy, as a businesswoman, I expect you to be well on the social media platform, selling the things that you sell, selling the lifestyle, you know, all of these things. Especially uh, the kids would go crazy for all the different hair colors that you have every single week. <laughs> 1745 Central African time. Let's cross it over to the money desk. Here's Tracy Boomgard with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Nigeria's willingness to sign the African Continental Free Trade Agreement will help boost trade throughout the continent. This is according to Mohamed Chambas, the UN Secretary General's Special Representative and Head of the UN Office for West Africa and the Sahel. The agreement aims to unite more than a billion people while creating a 3.4 trillion economic bloc. Hinayunya Eter, Professor of Economics and Econometrics at the University of Johannesburg, says African leaders should also reinvigorate their efforts to create an African monetary fund to accelerate regional integration. Regional integration, continental integration, is uh, is one way to unite Africa. And basically, free trade area, Africa continental free trade area, is actually the first step towards deeper regional integration. It is quite important simply because if you look at the direction of trade of African countries, you realize that most African countries are not trading with one another. They trade, but the degree or basically the intensity of mutual trade between African countries is actually low. Kenya and Tanzania have signed key agreements aimed at boosting bilateral ties among the deals between Presidents John Magufuli and Uhuru Kenyatta, an agreement was reached on the purchasing of gas from Tanzania by Kenya. Magufuli noted that Tanzania and Kenya would seek to increase trade. The energy ministers of both countries have been ordered to meet and discuss how Kenya will purchase gas from Tanzania. Theodore de Klerk will replace South African international retailer Steinhoff's chief financial officer, Philip Dieperink. This follows Dieperink's resignation. De Klerk's appointment is with effect from the beginning of September. In a statement, the company says Dieperink's departure is by mutual consent after the 2019 annual general meeting. The statement says Dieperink played a key role in finalizing both the 2017 and 2018 annual reports of Steinhoff and drafting the remediation plan arising from the Price-Waterhouse-Cooper investigation. Steinhoff's share price plunged in 2017 following an accounting scandal involving senior executives. Deutsche Bank's chief executive officer, Christian Sowin, says he plans to invest a substantial amount of his fixed salary in the lender. He made the commitment to analysts when explaining the German lender's restructuring. Shares were down around 5%. The announcement comes as the German lender began shedding 18,000 jobs globally in a bid to restructure its operations. On Monday, just hours after the announcement of the job cuts, Whole teams in its Asian operations were let go. Europe and the U.S. is expected to be the hardest hit. Head of the bank's investment bank already agreed to step down on Friday, with the head of regulation and head of sales also being let go. 
British Airways is set to begin talks with its pilots in an attempt to avert a strike in August. Pilots have rejected a pay increase worth 11.5% over three years, an offer the airline has described as fair and generous. Pilots have until the 22nd of July to vote in a strike ballot. The British Airline Pilots Association represents around 90% of the airline's pilots and the strike would hit at one of the busiest times of the year. The U.S. dollars trading at 356.31 Nigerian Naira, 10.48 Botswana Pula, at 101.27 Kenyan Shilling, and at 12.75 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.82 Brazilian Hale, 63.73 Russian Ruble, 68.24 Indian Rupee, 6.89 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.16 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,398 and platinum at $811 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $64.23 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. All right, right now it's time for us to cross on over to the sports desk. Here's Musi Budimakura with your latest sport. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, hundreds of supporters flocked to the OR Tambo International Airport earlier today when those protests arrived back on home soil. Now, the protests participated at the 2019 ICC Cricket World Cup in England and Wales, where they were eliminated in the group phase following a dismal tournament. They managed to win three matches in nine games and suffered five defeats during that tournament. However, they capped off their campaign with a memorable win against the current world champions, that is Australia, denying them top spot on the lock standings. Now, Captain Fav Duplessis addressed the media at a press conference at the airport. Extremely disappointed sitting here, um, but at least the last two games, we, sh- we proved to our, our fans and the, the, the type of cricket that we can play, and I'm very proud as a captain to say that because it is very easy for a team when they've been on the ropes for so long and a tough tournament just to fall away and go and disappear and, and, and we didn't do that. We stood up and we played some really good games of cricket. So yeah, that puts a small a small smile on my face. On to football news, the Federation of Uganda Football Associations have sacked the head coach of the country's national men's football team, that is Sebastian Dasebre. Now the sacking was communicated on the Federation's website on Saturday, a day after Uganda was eliminated by Senegal from the Total 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Egypt. Now the Federation on its website said they recognized the contribution of Dasebre for the improvement of the sporting and the professional organization of the Uganda Cranes, including, of course, the qualification to the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament, as well as the qualification to the round of 16. Still on football news, Kenyan Premier League club Cairo Bangi Sharks on Sunday created a piece of history by masterminding a 4-3 win over English Premier League side Everton on post-match penalties in a sport PESA organised international friendly match played at the full capacity Moyo International Sports Centre Kasarani Nairobi the two teams settled for a one-all draw at full time. Now Channel Africa's Francis Motegi reports. During the post-match penalty shootout Shaq's goalkeeper Brian Buire saved two sport kicks and converted one for a sweet victory in which the Kenyan players celebrated widely. The sport PESA Cup winners appeared and by the international stars in attendance, including England international Theo Walcott, as they played in front of a packed to capacity Kasarani Stadium in Nairobi. Everton's former players, Stephen Pena and Leon Osman, who were part of the delegation, had this to say. Kaiobangi Sharks have, have earned the honour of, of playing our, our blues, so yeah, it's, a, it's a fun, packed week. It's a, it's a time to 
with Sports Pacer and Everton really strengthen our position, strengthen our ties, I suppose, um, with Kenyan football and, and hopefully to, to, to help develop the young kids with the Kids for Africa scheme. It's obviously it's Everton's first preseason game, but um, you know, it's all about uh, having fun out there. On to netball news, South Africa's national netball team heads to this week's Netball World Cup Liverpool, England without goal shooter Anna Marie Fenter, who suffered an injury while in camp last week. Now Sigi Berger has been called up to the team as a replacement. The 2019 Global Showpiece will be played at the MS Bank Arena in Liverpool from the 12th up until the 21st of July. Here is Spa Proteus head coach Noma Plummer on Anna Marie's injury. Anna Marie pulled a calf muscle at training and yes it was serious enough that she would not be able to compete in the World Cup. We always had Ziggy Berger as one of the reserves on standby as also the other reserves were as well for centre court and for defence. Fortunately enough Ziggy hadn't left for Australia and we were quickly able to um, bring her over for the Wales Test Series before we knew exactly if Inna Marie would be ruled out. And as it is, she will be leaving to, to head home to Melbourne. Well, the Spa Proteas wrapped up their preparations for the World Cup with a Test Series win against Wales. And finally in boxing news, Tyson Fury says his rematch with WBC heavyweight champion Deontay Wilder will take place on the 22nd of February next year. Now Fury is the only boxer that Wilder has faced and not defeated after the pair battled to a draw in December last year in Los Angeles. Now Fury controlled much of that fight only to be knocked down twice, including once in the 12th round that looked to be the deciding blow. Well, there's Zion Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. And that's how we wrap up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time. But for now, from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leanna Maume, technical producer Tumelo Mukwena and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email, info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message, plus 27763003327 or tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Utando by Kelly Kumalo. We'll see you again later. Goodbye.
Takula ndirani pa programu ino ya Zoshitika mu Afrika pa chinyanja service ya 